Amen. First Kings chapter 16. First Kings chapter 16. By the way, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time if I'm a little bit goofier than normal. Had a, had a great day yesterday, but a little bit of a long day, and so I just might be a little on the goofy side. First Kings chapter 16, we had a great day, iron sharpens iron, we'll talk to you a little bit about that at the end of the service, and then last night I had a wedding to do all the way out in the West Valley at Westgate Plaza. It was really cool, I had never done a wedding out there before, I'm actually on the roof of Westgate Plaza looking down into all the, you know, restaurants and jobbing.com and everything. It was, it was pretty cool. But then late last night, I'm going, okay, I got to drive from Westgate all the way to Gold Canyon. That was, that was quite a hike. But we're here. We're glad to be here. And we're glad to be starting a new series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. First Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. Elijah is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament prophet. There's a significance to his life and ministry that God wants us to get, not only by studying him in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, but by all the times that he's mentioned in the New Testament. And of course, we know he was one of the two that were on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Moses, it was Elijah. I believe that Elijah and Moses will also be here during the tribulation period as a witness to those on earth. He just holds a very significant role in God's program. And there's a lot that we can learn, be challenged by, be encouraged by as we study the life of Elijah. And we don't get into the Old Testament, you know, maybe as much as the New. And, and one of the reasons is because when you study the Old Testament, when I speak from the Old Testament, it's different because it's narrative. It's not like the New Testament where it's just principles upon principles and you go down through verse by verse. The Old Testament is a little bit more of, a, of written as a story and as a narrative. And so our next nine weeks that we're together, we're nine weeks left, nine Sundays left in this year. And that's where we'll be studying the life of Elijah these next nine Sundays. You know, it's not going to maybe be verse by verse like you're used to in the New Testament. But we will cover the, the significance of the life of Elijah and how it sort of also parallels our lives and how it can impact our lives as well. I want to first begin with this, and then I want to read this passage. We do not choose as human beings, obviously, when we're born. We don't choose the times in which we live. But what God does expect from His people in each and every period of history is that we respond to the times in which we live in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring way. That, that God obviously says, you didn't choose to be born in this season of history. You didn't choose what's going on around you. But as Christians, we can make a choice on how we react to it and how we respond to it. I want you to notice, because this is... This is key, that a lot of what Elijah was and who Elijah was 
and how God used him obviously depended on the seasons, the times in which he lived. So let's be reminded of those times, beginning in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa's reign over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Omri's son Ahab became king over Israel. Ahab, son of Omri, ruled over Israel for 22 years in Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Don't want to go into this a lot, okay? But just to give us some background, remember, the nation of Israel wanted king like all other nations. So God relented, and they had Saul. Saul wasn't a very good king. Then David came along, united the kingdom of Israel, expanded it to its greatest glory. Then after David was Solomon. Then after Solomon, there was so much trouble, and they had forsaken God as a people, that one of the things that resulted from that was the kingdom of Israel split into two. There was the northern kingdom Israel, Samaria was the capital of that, and there was the southern kingdom Judah, and Jerusalem was the capital there. And even though Judah, the southern kingdom, maybe was a little bit more godly than the northern kingdom for a while, both kingdoms and both sets of kings did evil and wickedness in the sight of the Lord, taking the people of Israel away from the worship of God to the point where God not only eventually had to judge Israel, but had to judge, judge Judah too. Okay, so that's sort of the, you know, so we're in the northern kingdom. And it says, Ahab, son of Omri, verse 30, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. That's a mouthful. And again, we don't have time to go into reading about all the kings that came before Ahab. But basically, God is saying, oh, and guess what? When Ahab got on the throne and reigned for 22 years... It was spiritually the worst 22 years in all of Israel's history. He did more evil than all the kings before him. And these were the times in which Elijah lived. Notice verse 31. As if following in the sinful footsteps of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, was not bad enough. He married Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel are probably the most infamous couple in all the Bible. And God says, it was bad enough, Ahab, that you followed in the sinful footsteps of the kings before you, but you even went a step further in that you married that gal named Jezebel. And we're going to talk a lot about her in the next nine weeks. An interesting character, to say the least. She is the daughter of King Ethbal, of the Sidonians. And obviously they were Baal worshipers, as we're going to see. So not only did he follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam, not only did he marry Jezebel, but then the Bible goes on to say that he, the king of Israel, worshipped and bowed to Baal. He in fact set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal he had built in Samaria. It wasn't enough at this time 
for the worship of Jehovah to just sort of be cast alongside of false worship, the worship of Baal. It was that at this time in Israel's history, things had gotten so bad that the worship of Jehovah, the one true God, had actually been replaced by the worship of false gods. And it wasn't enough that the people were just satisfied to allow the worship of God to be set alongside all the false gods. It's you've got to get rid of the worship of God. And the only thing we're going to worship is that which is false. Does that sort of remind you of what's happening in our own country today? Where we are getting quickly to a point where it's not a matter of you as Christians can have your Christianity. It's a matter of we don't even want Christianity to be part of our culture anymore. We we don't want to just replace the worship of the one true God We don't even want that to exist anymore because we have chosen to follow false gods and idols. That's exactly the times and seasons that Elijah lived in. Notice it goes on to say in verse 33, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. That was simply a grove of trees for further idol worship and immorality. We'll talk a little bit more about all this. He did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In fact, he so disregarded the word of God. He so stood against the word of God that back in Joshua's day, God through Joshua prophesied that if anybody tried to rebuild the wicked city of Jericho, they would lose their children in foundational sacrifices. And Ahab didn't believe the word of God. He didn't regard the word of God. He didn't care about the word of God. So notice, this may seem disjointed, but it's just telling us again the kind of climate it was in Elijah's time that during Ahab's reign, verse 34, he directed a man by the name of Hiel, the Bethelite, to rebuild Jericho. Basically just saying to God, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what your word is. I'm going to do what I want to do. And basically just thumbed his knows at God. And the Bible says, Abiram, his firstborn son, died when he laid the foundation. And Segub, his youngest son, died when he erected its gates, just as the Lord had warned through Joshua, son of Nun. It was a very solemn reminder of the reliability of the word of God and that you can You can disregard the word of God. You can pretend God doesn't exist and his word doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean there won't be the consequences paid whenever we as human beings just ignore God and ignore what he says. Because what he says will come true and it needs to be heeded and it needs to be paid attention to. And if we choose not to pay attention to it, it is to our own peril that we do so. By the way, this is not a situation where God killed these two sons of Hiel. There's a lot of even extra-biblical and uh, evidence 
archaeological evidence that back in this day, this is how wicked these people were, that when they would build cities and erect cities and erect gates, they would literally sacrifice their own children to these false gods in the foundation of these cities. And God said, that's what will happen if you disregard my word. See, people, when they read the Old Testament, they say, oh, God, he, he seems so harsh and so hard and so judgmental against these people. He's the same God. We, we have to remember the fact that he was very patient with these people as they did wickedness beyond wickedness of even getting to the point where they were doing human sacrifices with their own children to these false gods. And then we wonder why God steps in and does what he does. Because he finally gets to a point where he's had enough and says, that's enough. That's enough. We're going to see that in just a couple of weeks. So this is the times and seasons in which Elijah is living. And so we're introduced to him sort of out of obscurity. In chapter 17, it's the first time we hear about a man named Elijah in the Bible. And it simply says in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. First of all, do you know where Tishbe is? I don't either. In fact, guess what? Nobody really does. This place has been sort of forgotten. Nobody even knows where Tishbe is. And if you were from Tishbe, then you were a Tishbite. And, and the point here is simply that, yes, it seems like Elijah comes out of nowhere. He does. But obviously, we're missing a lot of, of the relationship between Elijah and God up to this point. God just wants to pick up the story here. But let's not forget, obviously, Elijah was walking with his God way before we're introduced to him in chapter 17. The point I want to make is this. You and I don't have to be from some kind of particular family. We don't have to be from a particular location. We can be from somewhere as obscure as Tishbe. And God can use us if our heart is directed towards him. Don't have to be from, again, have a certain pedigree, come from a certain background. Elijah, the Bible says, even in the New Testament, was just like us. He, there was nothing special about Elijah from a human standpoint. He didn't come from some power family, the movers and shakers of his day. Not at all. He was from a little town called Tishbe, and yet he followed God with his whole heart. And because of that, notice what happens. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. couple things. First of all, I want to go back to Elijah's name. His name means my God is Jehovah. And even in his name, it, it is like a life that is set in contrast to what we just read at the end of chapter 16. And it reminds us that, again, we don't choose the times in which we're born. We don't choose the times in which we live and all that's going on around us. But what we can choose to do is respond to it in a proper way. And in a sense, Elijah 
had settled his commitment about who was his God and who he was worshiping. In a sense, it was like his life, even by using his name, was set in contrast to all those we were introduced to in chapter 16, including the leaders of the nation of Israel who said, our God is Baal. And Elijah comes on the scene and says, your God can be Baal, my God is Jehovah. And folks, that's what we need to see in the Christian community today. See, even amongst Christians, we need to have Christians who at least profess to be Christ followers who have truly settled the commitment in their life of who is their God and who they are going to worship. Because here's the deal. This is the truth. Every human being lives to worship or serve someone or something. It's not like, well, Christians, you choose to worship the one true God. We just choose not to worship anyone or anything. No. No. Every Christian, or excuse me, every human being, you live your life making your choices and decisions based on what or who you worship. You serve, and you're going to worship or serve something for this reason. God created every human being as a spiritual human being. With a soul and a spirit, he gave us, not just a human body. And because of that, because we are spiritual beings, even if we don't want to acknowledge it, we live our lives worshiping or serving something because the decisions and choices we make basically show us and show others what really is important. What we're worshiping, what we're bowing down to, what we're serving, whether it's ourselves, you know, our God is self, and so all the choices and decisions are about me, whether our God is money or material things, then our choices and decisions reflect that. But folks, every human being is worshiping and serving something. It's like what Joshua said at the end of the book of Joshua. He even looked out at the nation of Israel and says, as the leader of this nation, you may choose not to worship God. You may not have settled the commitment to Jehovah yet. But as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. We have settled our commitment. Our commitment is to God. You may choose to worship and serve some. You, you may choose to follow something else in this life. But know this. Every human being is living their lives in service, in worship, in submission, and in surrender to someone or something else. And Elijah comes on the scene and says, you all can be serving Baal and bowing to Baal and worshiping Baal my God is Jehovah. And then, notice, he becomes God's answer to Ahab. That is what is meant when the Bible says he says to King Ahab, as certainly as the Lord lives, there will not be rain in this land until I give the command. The word said there is the concept of giving an answer to Ahab. In other words... God looked out, says, this guy Elijah, 
He knows me. He walks with me. He will speak my word. I'm going to raise him up, and he's going to be my answer to the king of Israel. Folks, if you're here today, and you're a Christian, do you know something? God wants you to be an answer to someone. God wants you to be an answer to someone else. Whether that's just challenging what they believe, or standing up for what you believe, or whatever. But God always wants His people to be an answer to someone else. And even at this moment in your life, God is saying to us as Christians, I want you to stand up, and I want you to be an answer to your culture and to your society, and I want you to show out my light to them. And God isn't just general. God is very specific. There will be different times and seasons throughout our life where there will be somebody specific, just like it was with Elijah, where God says, I want you to be my answer to Ahab. And God will say to you and lead you and direct you and say, I want you to be my answer to so-and-so. Maybe it's not a negative thing even about correcting what they believe or challenging what they believe. Maybe it's just about being in their life and showing them what the right way is. Maybe they're totally ignorant about the fact that God lives and that he loves them and that he exists and that he died for their sins and that that they can have a personal relationship. They may not have ever heard the gospel because, folks, we can't take for granted anymore, even in America, that people have heard that Jesus loves them and that God died for them, and that they really understand the gospel anymore. Because we are living not in a a generation anymore where we take for granted that people know that. But God does want you to be an answer to people throughout your life, just as he did to Ahab. And the answer was this. It's not going to rain until God says so. Yes, this was a message through Elijah, but this was something that God obviously gave Elijah to tell Ahab. Why? Why that particular choice? Well, Baal was the god of storms. Baal was the god of thunder and lightning and rain. And and for an agrarian society, for a society that depended on rain for crops and all of that to live, obviously that's one of the reasons why Baal became top dog as far as the false gods go. Because in their mind, this is the God that brings rain. This is the God that brings lightning and thunder. This is the God that brings fertility to the land. We worship you, O Baal. And basically God was saying through the prophet Elijah... You, first of all, you think that Baal even exists? I'll tell you, not only does he not exist, he can't control the rain. He has no control over any of the weather. He's not the weather God. I'm the weather God. And if I say it's not going to rain, it's not going to rain. And Baal can't do anything about it because he doesn't even exist. And that was the message that Elijah was to give to King. That was the answer from God to Ahab. Your God doesn't control the weather. God, Jehovah, the one and only true God, 
He's the one that controls the weather. So it's not going to rain until he says so, until he directs me to say it's going to rain. Then the Lord told him in verse 2, Leave here and travel eastward and hide out in the Kirith Valley near the Jordan. A couple things. First of all, I thought this was really cool since I'm the pastor of the Oasis. So I had to, you know, the Kirith Valley was basically another way of saying the oasis. So don't miss it. God's saying, hide out at the oasis. I love that. That should be our tagline for our church. You know, God says, hide out at the oasis. That's what God said. But beyond that, why now, after God has spoken through Elijah to Ahab, why does God sort of draw Elijah back and sort of seclude him and hide him out because God is doing a couple things here. First of all, there's going to be battles and challenges and trials and all of that ahead. And God knows that if we're going to be strong enough and prepared enough and and in a right place to be able to handle what's coming... That the main way you and I do that is by getting alone with God. And so what God here is doing is modeling for all of us who came after Elijah. That yes, there will be times where you stand and and you're my answer to someone. And where you're ministering and where you're serving. But folks, again, don't ever do that without it being from the overflow of our own personal fellowship and time with God. Because that's exactly what God is doing here to Elijah. He's saying, Elijah, now I want you to come apart. I want you to come away with me to this oasis. And it's just going to be you and me for a while. And, and, and we're going to fellowship. And, and, and you're, going to, you're going to get stronger just because you are in seclusion with me. Folks, don't miss that. God wants to meet with you individually. And he wants to speak to you and strengthen you and encourage you and refresh you and restore you. And... And all of these things. But God wants to do it, just you and him. And you and I need to find that seclusion time where we are hiding out with just us and God. And where it's just us and God. Because the only way we can be who we need to be for God publicly is if we are being who we need to be with God privately. We cannot have a public ministry like God wants us to and like we could have if our time with God in private isn't what it could or should be. And so God is saying, Elijah, come on. It's just going to be you and me and we're going to have some good times together. But there's another reason why God tells Elijah to hide out at the oasis. Because it's during this time alone with God, too, where Elijah is going to learn some more and grow some more and be stretched some more as he sees how this God just so provides and protects and, and just is stretching his faith and growing his faith as he's where God wants him to be. In fact, notice what it says in verse 4. Drink from the stream. I have already told the ravens to bring you food there. 
I've already taken care of it, Elijah. If you just follow me to where I want you to be, I'll provide for you. I'll take care. You will see that I am faithful. And you will even grow in your faith in in greater ways by going where I'm telling you to because you will see things that you could never see if you were not willing to follow me to where I want you to be. Folks, ravens don't even feed their own young. So we're talking miracle here. It was no small thing for God to say, oh, I'm going to feed you and I'm going to have the ravens bring the food to you. First of all, ravens were an unclean bird to the Israelites. And God is basically saying, I can use whatever I want. It's at my disposal. And I'm going to take something that's very unnatural because ravens don't even take care of their own young. I'm going to use these ravens to feed you every single day. Because you're going to learn at this place that I am faithful, that I can be relied on, that I can be dependable, because you're going to need all this in the days to come. Because I know what's coming. I know the battles that are coming. I know the challenges that are coming to you, Elijah. And I want to prepare you. And our God is always about preparation. Taking us to an oasis where we can be prepared for what's coming in our life. So that we don't get run over, but so that we have the strength and the faith and all of that to deal with what's coming. And to face the challenges of the days in which we live. And that's exactly what was happening here. So the Bible says in verse 5, and this is no small thing, Elijah did as the Lord told him. Wow. That might seem simple to us. But that's huge. Elijah just did what God told him to do. And the reason I say that is because even as Christians, there are times where it's like, well, God, I know what you want me to do, but how about if I do my own thing here and let's try to make that work? Or, okay, God, I know what you want, but how about if I do 75% of what you want and the other 25% what I want? And see, in the Bible, there's no such thing as pleasing to God in complete obedience. There's no such thing. It's foreign. We are either completely obedient or we're not. There's no gray area there. We're either obedient completely or we're not. And you and I, as Christians even, we sort of like, well, you know, I'm, I'm almost 100% obedient, just, you know. So when the Bible says that Elijah did exactly what the Lord told him, let's not miss that. That's the key here. Because Elijah could have been like us and sort of either argued with God or wrestled with God. God, why are you sending me down there? But Elijah did what the Lord told him to do. He went and he lived at the Kirith Valley near the Jordan. And the Bible says in verse 6, the ravens would bring him bread and meat literally every single morning and every single evening. And he would drink from the stream. We don't choose 
the times in which we live. We don't choose when we're born, but we can choose how we respond to the times in which we live. And one of the things that we first see as we begin to dive into the life of Elijah and study him is he had settled his commitment as to who was his God. And his life then is a very big billboard to all Christians to say, have we settled our commitment to who our God is? Really? Are we really putting God first? Is he the one we worship above everything else? Or is there idols in my life? Are there false gods, things which are taking God's place, either someone or something else other than God? And Elijah would say to us that if we're going to thrive and survive in the times in which we live as Christians, we better settle who our God is and who we're worshiping. Just like Joshua said to the people of Israel. Hey, you can choose to worship other gods, but choose. Make a choice, you know, of who you're going to worship, who you're going to serve. And the second thing we see here is that Elijah was God's answer to King Ahab. Now, God may not ever ask you or give us the opportunity to stand before a king, a leader of a country, and be God's answer to them, but Make no mistake about it, God is going to want to use your life and my life to be an answer to somebody. Whether it's to show them the love of God or even to challenge what they believe. By knowing what we believe and why we believe it and being able to show them from the scriptures that that's not what the Bible teaches or says. But God wants us to be an answer to someone in our lives. But in order to do that effectively, we have to be willing to hide out with God and spend time alone with him. Because I want to direct your attention to something else before we wrap this up this morning. Go back up to verse 1. In Elijah's message to Ahab, he says, As certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. This word serve means to stand or to take a stand. It's why I titled this whole series on Elijah, Take a Stand. And the reason is because this word, serve, has two meanings in the Hebrew. The first is that basically it's saying that Elijah was willing to stand before God because he'd already settled his commitment about who God was and stand before God and basically say, Here I am, God, send me, sort of like Isaiah did. Here I am, Lord, whatever you want, I'm standing before you. I'm making myself available because the only way as believers in God, we will truly make ourselves available to God and stand before him and offer our lives as a sacrifice is if we've settled the commitment that he is our God. And so the reason why Elijah could say, I serve God, I stand before him, and whatever he wants, I make myself available to him, is because he had settled that commitment. But secondly, the word also means that if I'm willing to stand before God and make myself available to him to use me however he wants to, that means I'm also willing to take a stand for him. And that's exactly what Elijah did in his day. He took a stand for God. And folks, that's what we as Christians need to do today. 
We're just letting the world and evil and wickedness just run over us. And we are so passive and we have become as Christians and as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so weak that we have no answer for our culture, for our country, or for anything. And it is time for the church to grow strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be the answer, the only answer that this world needs. And to be able to take a stand and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. There is no other answer for this world other than Jesus Christ. And we need to be willing to take a stand for God. But again, I won't be willing to take a stand for God unless I've settled the commitment that he really is my God. One other thing. Notice the Bible says in verse 4, when God directs him, he says, drink from the stream I've already told the ravens to bring you food there. Key word, there. In fact, it's emphasized in the Hebrew. In other words, God is saying, that's where I want you. That's the place I want you. There. That's where you'll find my provision. That's where you'll be protected. That's where you'll see my power. That's where you'll have the privilege of seeing things you would never see if you weren't there. And so what is God saying to us through Elijah? He's saying this. Are you there? Are you where God wants you to be? Are you at the place God wants you to be? And God would say to us, find there, get there, and stay there until I tell you to leave. Have you found there? Have you gotten there? Are you staying there until God tells you to go somewhere else? And let me say this about there. Usually, most of the time in our lives, the there that God wants us to be isn't a place that we would probably choose for ourselves. Elijah probably could have thought about a lot of better places to be than have ravens flying in with food every day to feed him and drinking from a stream. That was sort of cool for a while, but that would sort of lose its effect after a while. Most of the time, where God wants us for a time is where he wants us, but not necessarily where we would choose for ourselves. And yet it is there that, again, we will see things that we would never see, and we will experience things with God that we will never experience if we're not willing to go there. For Noah, there was an ark. For Daniel, there was a prayer room that led to a lion's den. For Daniel's three friends, there was a fiery furnace. For Ruth, there was a field owned by a man named Boaz. For Esther, there was a palace in Persia. For Paul, there was missionary trips and jail cells. 
And for the Son of God, there was a cross. Have you found there? Have you gotten there? Are you staying there? If we want to be the answer for God in our times, if we want to be able to stand up and stand for righteousness and for God in the world in which we live, if we want to settle our commitment about who is God and who we worship in our lives, the key is getting there. Getting to where God wants us to be in this time and season of our life and not moving until God says, move. Because it's only there where we truly see the power, provision, protection, the privilege of being exactly where God wants us to be. And this is what we begin to learn from the life of Elijah. Hope you'll come back next week as we see where else God wants to take Elijah and how it relates to our life. Let's pray. God, help us to take a stand for you in this world. Hopefully there's no one here or no one who even is listening to my voice over podcast that believes that it's not necessary for us as Christians to take a stand. Hopefully nobody's there. <laughs> we see the necessity, the need of our, of our own country, our own culture, and even what's happening all over the world that it, it should ring out very clearly that if ever Christians were to get serious about their commitment of who God was to them and who we need to be and that we need to be willing to rise up and take a stand for and against certain things in our culture, it is now. We need Elijah's coming out of the church today who are willing to stand before God and make themselves available and to stand up for God and be God's answer to people today in this world, just as Elijah was. But make no mistake about it, the most important thing that God wants to get through to us through this first part of Elijah's life is that all of that is only going to happen if, just like Elijah, we are willing to hide out with God to get alone with God and to be in the place that God wants us to be. Most of the time, a place that we would not choose for ourselves, but it's a place where we are learning about God, where our faith is being stretched, where we're seeing God work in spite of what we're dealing with, where we're growing, where we're seeing things that only could be explained because of you, God. God, every one of your children at some point had to be willing to go there 
God, I pray that we would be willing to do that as well as we look to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.